Well, hello there. It is great to see you again, and welcome back to the season finale of Closing Arguments. It's great to have you back here in the courtroom with us. I am your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff. And as always, we've got Jack Razimich of Razimich & Associates joining us here. We're going to be diving into another criminal law-related discussion. That's what we tackle here on the show. And boy, do we have a good topic lined up for you guys today here in the season finale. It's really to close out uh, our first season of the show. Uh, but look, as you know, for anybody that's been a, a frequent you know, listener, listener or viewer of the show, you know that we've kind of flipped back and forth between some more educational topics and then some case studies. And of course, the case studies can be fun, not only for you guys, but obviously they're fun for Jack and I just to unpack together, uh, you know, to really reach back into some of the experiences that he's had dealing with cases, you know, in, across the state of Indiana and talking about the ripple effect of some of these cases, you know, nationwide. Today, we're going to be diving into the insanity defense. I mean, how many times have we seen this played out in movies? television shows it's really really a fireworks of a topic uh and i'm excited to get into this one with jack there's a lot of different things that we're going to be hitting we're you know as we typically do we've got this conversation today carved up into kind of three different themes the first of which we're going to go over a brief history of insanity and where it kind of stemmed from within the court system then the idea of pleading insanity what this means how that happens how it unfolds in a courtroom and then finally we'll get into insanity specifically within the state of indiana and how that operates there there but hey without further ado let's go ahead and bring jack on and get right into this discussion jack it's good to see you today how are you doing great we made it 12 episodes amen amen we are here season finale uh you made a comment just before we pressed that record button jack and i loved it you know it's been a crazy year crazy 12 episodes why not finish with you know insanity <laughs> how fitting is that it, it it absolutely is it's uh <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, there's, it's, and, there's and if you, and if you pay attention said. to the news, it's just getting crazier out there too. So I think I think that it seems very timely in the grand scheme of things to talk about the crazy defense. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, no, it's it's been a wild ride these past twelve months. Absolutely, 12 months, well, I mean, twelve months. I mean, like eighteen. It took us a while to kind of hit that stride <laughs> right. to make sure that we were getting it there. So, right, exactly, Jack. No, uh, it's been a fun time, obviously, with you. We got a good episode here for our audience today. Let's start, you know, with the history, really, of insanity. Could you talk to me first? Of, let's actually start high level here, Jack. What is an insanity defense in the first place? An insanity defense is one of those affirmative defenses. They popped up a handful of times in episodes over the years where the argument is that you may have committed what would otherwise have been a criminal act, but you have a legal justification for why that action should not hold you punishment. With an insanity defense specifically, the insanity defense, it's an affirmative defense um, which argues that the defendant is not responsible for their actions due to some sort of either episodic or persistent psychiatric or mental health issue that happened at the time of the criminal act. Effectively, the argument is this would be a criminal offense by any other set of definitions, but because the defendant has a mental disease or defect, which is the technical term in the law that's that's written in the statute so don't don't leave angry comments on it that's literally what the law says uh they suffer from a mental disease or defect that affects their ability to appreciate the wrongfulness of their actions so the argument is when you're pleading an insanity defense you're arguing that i was incapable of appreciating that this was wrong and that represents a complete defense to actually being held responsible for an otherwise criminal act 
Roger that. So, so take us back a little bit in time here, Jack, how far back in the law and really just in reality, do we start seeing insanity defenses creeping into play within a courtroom? The insanity defense is actually one of the older defenses that we've got in the legal system. Okay. Um, the first recorded instances of exemption from full punishment on the grounds of insanity or other mental defect actually dates back to the Code of Hammurabi, which was written circa 1755 to 1750 BC. So we're talking, you know, a good, you know, 3,700 years ago is kind of the first time you really do see some sort of exemption in the law that says we're not going to treat people who suffer from this disease the same way that we would treat other people. So it, it was a very early part of, of the way that, that we do see the insanity defense developing. Um, the first real codification of, of anything regarding the insanity defense actually came up during the reign of uh, King Edward II of England in the 1300s. His uh, royal decree is that if a, was that if a person's competency was no greater than a wild beast, they were considered to be insane. So the idea was, um, you know, if you were no better than a dumb animal, uh, you're legally incapable of committing a crime at that point in time. So um, that's obviously pretty offensive and certainly not the way that we would phrase it these days. Um, the development of insanity, you know, it, it really does have kind of a lengthy situation. The, the oldest, uh, when researching the, the, the histories and the cases for today's episode, the oldest instance that I could find of an insanity trial in the United States actually is uh, from 1638 in the Massachusetts colony. Wow. Uh, English, uh, American common law, the, the colonial law, and what eventually became the common law of the United States, uh, was wholeheartedly imported from English common law. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1638, there was a case involving a, a woman by the name of Dorothy Talby. And uh, Dorothy Talby was put on trial for murdering her daughter. And um, the defense that was put forward is something that we would recognize as being the, the insanity defense as far as today is concerned. Um, in, in this particular case, Ms. Talby um, argued that God told her to murder her infant child. Mm -hmm. um, now, the colonial governor thought that she was possessed by the devil because it is 1638. Sure. Um, but even that request for clemency um, was not sufficient because she confessed to the actual act. And at the time that this happened in, in, in the 17th century, English common law, and by result, American colonial law, really had no exemptions or extenuating circumstances for the crime of murder. It was a very specific hmm. thing. If you are found guilty of murder, the only punishment is death. This wasn't a situation of life in prison or anything along those lines. Um, that's that's all there was. They they sure. had to execute her because she was found guilty of that. Yeah. Um, so Which she I was would, I would imagine. I would yeah. imagine that. Sorry to cut you off. But I would imagine that would that makes for a very interesting trial when when the stakes are that big. You know, there isn't a ah, we'll throw you in jail for a few months or we'll throw you in jail for the rest of your life. It's it's life or death at that point in time. And 
Did we see that? Did we see the stakes of life or death in terms of insanity cases evolve at all over time as as history progressed? They do evolve a little bit um, as as time goes on with that. It's actually fascinating. Most evolutions in the insanity defense and the insanity jurisprudence typically involve either murdering someone or attempting to murder somebody. Um, The next major evolution in the insanity defense is actually the Criminal Lunatics Act of 1800. And that's an English statute that was passed in the wake of the acquittal of a, of a man by the name of James Hadfield um, by reason of insanity. A, an English jury found him to be not guilty by reason of insanity. By 1800, of course, um, the, the jury system is starting to be a little bit more consistent with what we, we see these days. I think we talked about that a little bit last episode with the evolution in juries. Um, James Hadfield actually attempted to assassinate King George III. <laughs> And what happened at that point in time, the way the jurisprudence went is like they, they didn't have, they didn't have anything that basically said, what do we do if someone's found to be not guilty of reason by reason of insanity? So um, what ended up happening is the, the decision the the criminal lunatics act uh, basically stated that if you were found to be not guilty uh, by reason of insanity, it mandated under law, uh, detention at the region's pleasure, even for those who, although insane at the time of the offense, were now sane. Basically, it said, if you are found not guilty by reason of insanity, um, we're going to lock you up as a danger to yourself or others for as long as we feel like we're going to do that. Um, yeah. As you can imagine, Mr. Hatfield, for trying to assassinate the king, died in prison. <laughs> so- sure, you don't say. That's uh, that 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 the, the yeah. region's pleasure at that point in time was effectively the rest of his life. Sure. Um, the the next major major thing that happened with that, and, and that actually is the way that controlled United States jurisprudence up until the 1950s, uh, was another English case. Uh, the the trial of Daniel McNaughton um, led to the development of the McNaughton Rules of 1843. And again, this is another one of those situations where um, the advancement of this area of law is rather morbidly tied heavily with murder. Um, Daniel McNaughton was a a Scottish woodcutter who murdered a man by the name of Edward Drummond, who Mr. McNaughton mistook for the British prime minister. And um, his his trial was basically the the English version of the trial of the century at the time. Nine of his neighbors testified before the court that he was absolutely barking mad. And um, much more so than with the Criminal Lunatics Act of 1800, as a result of McNaughton's acquittal, there was more of an effort to establish kind of like a framework of rules that discuss how the insanity defense actually plays out. Basically, the rules define insanity for the purposes of the defense as being, at the time of committing the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defective reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and the quality of the act he was doing or as not to know what he was doing was wrong. So that, again, that's very much the the foundation of, of what we have for the insanity defense today, which is that you're under the influence of a mental disease or defect 
to the extent that you're incapable of appreciating the wrongfulness of your actions. It's not, it's basically, there's no intent to commit a crime because you don't understand that you're committing a crime. There's, there's no guilty conscience that goes along with that. It is referred to as the mens rea and that's absent. And um, the McNaughton rule of 1843 that was adopted by the United States, and that became the jurisprudence of the United States up until the 1950s, which uh, I'll explain the next advancement in that jurisprudence mm-hmm. when we actually start talking about the status of the law in America. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves on that. Sure, sure. No, but it's good to understand where that foundational set of rules really comes from to kind of hone in on what makes an insanity defense case. Because obviously, hey, if you see it work at one time, you get an acquittal, naturally, we're going to lean into trying to utilize that, you know, at our advantage when maybe right. insanity isn't really at play, right? So, so you mentioned a word earlier, competency. What's the difference here between insanity versus competency? I would imagine this is a relatively frequent topic of conversation within criminal law what do you see here in you know that insanity versus competency conversation they're very closely related but different which mm-hmm. is probably the most lawyerly way that you can answer any type <laughs> of question sure they both involve issues of mental wellness and mental ability to stand trial the difference is competency is a determination of here and now Competency is basically the ability to adequately assist your attorney in preparing a defense, uh, making informed decisions about trial strategy, including whether or not to testify, and whether or not to even proceed to trial versus accepting a guilty plea. Um, That is a very here and now situation. The, The idea is that if you are capable of assisting your attorney in the defense, if you understand what's going on now, um, you're competent to stand trial. If you are not capable of understanding the wrongfulness of your actions when they took place, that's a different argument. And, and the reason that that is a different thing is there are situations where people who are suffering from mental diseases or mental illnesses at the time that a crime takes place, they may not be getting medicated. They may not have an appropriate diagnosis. They may not know what's actually wrong with them. One of the things that you will see, and it's a, it's, a, it's a really sad commentary on the way that society has kind of gone, but for the most part, our jails and our prisons are some of the largest mental health hospitals in the United States today. As a result, sometimes when a person is locked up for the first time possibly ever, they are getting adequate mental health treatment or, or at least mental health attention. Treatment might be a little bit ambitious, but they are getting examined. They are sometimes getting a diagnosis. And what goes along with those diagnoses are medication. And that medication can make them capable of understanding the proceedings that are going on around them. And that can make them competent to stand trial because now they're capable of assisting their attorney. Now they're capable of answering questions. Now they're capable of actually deciding, hey, I want to proceed to trial or, hey, I want to testify or not testify. Um, And that's irrespective of whether or not they were insane at the time the actual commission of the offense. It is completely possible and and uh, one of the case studies that we'll discuss, because I have actually tried and won an insanity trial. Uh, my client was found to be competent to stand trial, but he was found to be insane at the time of the commission of the offense. So they are different things just based off of what period of time you're looking at. 
Mm-hmm. Roger that. And, and, you know, Jack, before we move into the idea of actually pleading insanity, there's one other differentiation I think we should clear up. And we've, because a lot of us have probably heard it in television, radio, you know, uh, you know, uh, movies and whatnot is this idea of temporary insanity. Walk me through how that relates to true insanity for lack of a better term, um, you know, within a courtroom and kind of as history unfolded. Temporary insanity isn't really insanity as we understand it in the law right now. Um, arguing temporary insanity is more along the lines of arguing that there's a diminished responsibility uh, or a diminished capacity that rendered a defendant, you know, quote unquote, insane at the time of the commission of a crime because of some sort of overwhelming emotional response. Um, historically, when before, you know, when we were relying much more heavily on common law types of situations as opposed to the more formal uh, pleading structure that we have with affirmative defenses right now. Temporary insanity would fall under the category of an affirmative defense referred to as provocation. And, and provocation was the idea that someone had just basically pushed all of your buttons to the point where you just snapped and bad things happen. Um, it, 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 it's kind of a, a, a heat of passion moment where that kind of survives is in the uh, in the in the involuntary manslaughter um, defense that that you, or the voluntary manslaughter defense that you'll see these days. Um, manslaughter is a lesser included offense of murder. It basically argues that you committed the criminal offense under what's referred to as sudden heat, uh, which is again an overwhelming um, passionate response to to something. Usually, finding out that a spouse is cheating on you. Um, the idea is that they were so overcome with rage, they were not capable of controlling their actions for that temporary period of time. And that's why they committed the criminal offense. It, it's an affirmative defense to the extent that it lessens the potential criminal liability. Unlike being found not guilty by reason of insanity, if you're arguing some form of sudden heat or some form of provocation that resulted in your criminal action, that does not actually represent a complete bar to punishment. It mitigates the damages. It minimizes the potential punishment, mm-hmm. um, but it's not actually a bar to prosecution. It, it's not a sign of innocence. Uh, temporary insanity really is not something that has been formally pled Probably since about the 1920s, um, okay. the the oldest instance that I was able to find where it was uh, successfully used, it was used by a uh, United States congressman from New York uh, by the name of Daniel Sickles in 1859, who used it as a defense to uh, murdering his wife's um, I, I'm not actually sure what the term for for an adulterous male partner is. Uh, a mistress would be for the woman. I don't master maybe for the man. I'm not really sure. He murdered his wife's lover is basically where I'm going at with this. Mm-hmm. And and again, he made that temporary insanity argument on the concept that he was provoked into that action and lost control of his faculties, and that's why he committed this criminal offense. Um, right. At that point in time, that was considered to be a complete bar to punishment that is no longer the case these days that has not been the case for a number of years um that might be the, there might have been some more successful cases on that was the mm-hmm. oldest one i could find for doing the research okay. on that 
Um, but it is not considered to be a, a bar to prosecution these days. Got it. Got it. Well, I mean, worth worth clearing up that differentiation between, you know, not sure. only competency, but obviously uh, temporary insanity. But, Jack, I, I'd like to kind of shift now into the idea of truly pleading insanity, you know, that how it plays out within a court of law. So let's start this next theme, this next conversation here, the episode. Tell us how frequently do you see insanity pleas, uh, you know, being used within a defense these days? It's incredibly rare. Um, mm -hmm. Movies and television make it seem like insanity defenses are, are being pled all over creation. And you'll also get the media will fixate on, you know, crazy instances of the law that make good copy, things like the Twinkie defense or affluenza or something like that, where there's an argument that there's a diminished mental capacity. Uh, you know, the media seizes on those things and they hype them up. And of course, you've got movies like uh, movies and, and, and books like the Batman series where every one of his villains is insane. And, and it creates this impression that the insanity defense is a regular thing that gets pled. And really, nothing could be further than the truth. Um, according to an eight-state study um, that was done in in the early 2000s, the insanity defense was used in less than 1% of all court cases. And when it was actually used, it only had about a 26% success rate. So that's, that's an extremely low minority of wow, even yeah. filing in the first place. And then uh, a minority of that minority of cases are actually being found not guilty of, by reason of insanity. Mm -hmm. um, and even the cases where it was successful, 90% of those defendants had been previously diagnosed with a mental illness. So it's not a situation you can wow. sort of just walk in sure. and say, I'm just going to claim I was insane and get away with it. You know, the people who did get away with it, to the extent we're, that we see anyone got away with it, um, <laughs> there was already... There, yeah, there was something. documentation that this is an mm -hmm. issue. Yeah, um, yeah. In, wow. in the, that's, yeah, in, that's in fantastic. The, yeah, in the 16 years that I've been doing this, um, obviously, obviously, I had my case that we'll talk about that was mm -hmm. an insanity case. That one went to a full trial. Um, I don't know of any other cases where that was an issue i've had a couple of other cases where we've done competency and insanity evaluations mm -hmm. but we never moved on to the actual insanity trial aspect of it. we did the evaluation to cross that off of the list but it didn't seem like there was enough there to proceed to the trial mm -hmm. um you know so again I, I can only give you my personal experience but I yeah no i i'm the only one that i know that's actually done an insanity trial Right. And, and I'm excited to unpack that because, I mean, you were boots on the ground. You were right in that case. And so I'm excited to get into that. We will in just a moment. But let's still talk about this idea of if somebody was to plead insanity. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, obviously, we did a full episode on this show about the various affirmative defenses that exist out there, you know, mm -hmm. as well as in just, you know, generally speaking for your practice in the state of Indiana. But Throughout this affirmative defense of pleading insanity, is there a shifting of burden that's happening within this process? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, insanity is one of the rare affirmative defenses um, that does shift the burden from the prosecution to the defense as far as what needs to be proven. In the majority of the states, including Indiana, the burden of proving insanity is placed on the defendant who has to prove insanity by preponderance of the evidence. That means that once the defendant raises the issue of insanity, 
they are acknowledging, yes, this crime happened. And yes, the defendant committed this crime. They are not guilty, however, because of this mental illness. And they are responsible by proving more likely than not that they had the mental illness and that the mental illness was so overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly in control of them that it prevented them from appreciating that their actions were wrong. There are a very few states, I think I, I think I came across five, where the burden actually does stay with the prosecution. I was surprised about that when I was doing the research for this case. Um, the burden of proof in those in those states, it's on the prosecution who has to prove who excuse me, who has to prove sanity beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, so in that situation, this the burden does stay with the prosecution. And the prosecution at that point in time doesn't have to prove the crime anymore, but they have to prove that the defendant was actually sane. That's wow, wow, what a, a shift. really I, interesting I dynamic. That. Yeah, I mean, you plan for a case, and then and then obviously the, the insanity plea comes out. I mean, that boy does that shift the dynamic of what you have to prove in terms of that burden. But mm -hmm. I, I feel like that can really derail a prosecution potentially. Would you Would you agree? I mean, I know you had mentioned the statistic, and so, you know, so many of these you know insanity pleas don't actually you know result in acquittals, but. Uh, but man, that is a really interesting dynamic where the, that shifting of the burden stays with the prosecution. Yeah, I just I don't know. It, it, it I would not envy a prosecutor who has to prove sanity beyond <laughs> sure. reasonable doubt. It, it, it sure. does seem like kind of one of those things like you just sort of. For most people, like, again, it is probably one of those things that you really do feel like it should be kind of a clear thing It's like you're either it's like, OK this guy is insane or no, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't feel mm -hmm. like there should be a lot of middle ground on that. There surprisingly yeah. is. Uh -huh. And um, I, I guess yeah, the super prosecution would have to, I, I guess the prosecution would probably have to prove that by showing things like, I don't know, motive actions before actions after, you know, showing that they're thinking clearly Mm -hmm. um the closest that i can think of is is again going back to the manslaughter concept with with mm -hmm. sudden heat being a mitigating factor for murder you know i've had prosecutors argue in murder trials that you know there's evidence that shows that the that the defendant was acting in a calm collected and methodical manner there's no sudden heat there that that might be the way that they would have to prove sanity beyond a reasonable doubt but that was such a weird thing that i saw Mm -hmm. um when doing the research for this yeah. the only other wrinkle that i came across with this and this is limited specifically to um the federal courts and the state of arizona the burden is uh there, there's a burden shift on it the burden does shift to the defendant and, but in the federal circuits and in arizona the defendant has to prove insanity by clear and convincing evidence which is a higher burden of proof okay um, if if Preponderance of the evidence is is 50% plus one and proof beyond a reasonable doubt is what you normally have to prove for a criminal case. Clear and convincing evidence is somewhere there in the middle. There's not really a good number you can put on that one that I've been able to find. Okay. Um, but that's those are those are the only variations. Uh, I, I knew about the federal one. I didn't know that Arizona did that also. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was completely flabbergasted when I found out that there were states that made this made the prosecution yeah. for sanity beyond reasonable doubt. Wild, wild. Well, I'll tell you what, could before we get into insanity then in Indiana, obviously your case specifically, Jack, 
could you just give us maybe a little bit of an overview on just kind of the current state really of insanity please within American law today? Sure. Like I mentioned earlier, um, starting in 1843 with the McNaughton rule, the United States courts pretty uh, pretty heavily adapted that almost verbatim. There were there were a, a couple of of minor tweaks to it um, with regards to how we approach that here. Uh, the, the, the American version of the McNaughton rule was that a defendant would not be held responsible for their actions only if, as a result of the mental disease or defect, they did not know that their actions would be wrong or they did not understand the nature and quality of their actions. Uh, that was the basis of the law governing legal responsibility in cases um, uh, of insanity for the United States um, until 1954. In 1954, there was a federal case called Germ versus United States, and and it's it's one of those fascinating instances. Um, this was not a Supreme Court of the United States case. This was a random federal circuit case that got decided, and without the Supreme Court basically saying these are the rules now, everyone just decided that eh, you know that seems like a pretty good standard. Let's change everything to match that standard. And what happened in the Durham case? Um, the courts found that a defendant is entitled to an acquittal if the crime was the product of the mental illness, which means that the crime would not have been committed but for the mental disease. So the idea was that it, it shifted the burden or, or it shifted the dynamic slightly. Previous to the Durham case, the issue was, um, you know, as a result of the mental disease or illness, um, did they know that their actions would be wrong or do they fail to understand that the nature and the quality of their actions um, is wrong? That shifted to the concept of did this crime happen because of the mental illness? Um, an example of that would be let's let's go all the way back to um, let's go back to uh, Dorothy Talby, for example. Dorothy Talby, again, murdered her daughter because she thought that God told her to do that. If she's not suffering from a mental illness, she's probably not going to murder her daughter. So that's that's an example of the Durham rule um, where the product of that crime is what led to the crime happening. Um, it, it is a subtle shift on that. It, you know, it does allow for people who are suffering from mental illnesses at that point in time to be held fully responsible for their actions if their actions are not a result of a manifestation of that mental illness. And, and that largely has still been, with minor tweaks, the, the, the law generally in the United States since the 1950s. Um, the other major issues that you've got that have shown that have kind of developed with the law of insanity in the United States is in 1984, after John Hinckley Jr. Uh, was found not guilty by reason of insanity of attempting to assassinate then President Reagan, Congress passed the Insanity Defense Reform Act. Um, under that act, the burden of proof uh, was formally shifted from the prosecution to the defense. Previous to that, it had been kind of a common law situation where if the defense was going to raise the affirmative defense, it was going to it was going to be on the defense's shoulders. 
Um, the, the Insanity Defense Reform Act was the first time that I saw where it was specifically written into the law that mm. this is the burden shift on that. And, and that it. also established uh, the federal standard that we talked about a few moments ago, mm -hmm. which is where yeah. the defendant is required to prove by preponderant, by, uh, sorry, by clear and convincing evidence that the insanity exists um, to, to justify the acquittal. And um, I did not have um, I did not have enough time, as much time as I wanted to, to look into the Hinckley case to determine how that insanity trial ended up going. I don't mm -hmm. know if he was found to be not guilty on the lower preponderance of the evidence burden. The fact that Congress went to all the effort of saying that we're going to make it clear and convincing evidence makes it seem very much like it was a preponderance of the evidence standard for the federal yeah. courts. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why it was changed. Sure. Uh, but again, that's that that established again the federal framework by uh, preponderance of the evidence for the burden. It also established the uh, the the first formalizing of of the burden shift on that. Mm -hmm. um, since 1984, it's been relatively quiet in the development of insanity jurisprudence. Um, the only other two major issues that that I saw um, were both Supreme Court cases. Uh, two years later, in 1986, in the case of Ford versus Wainwright, uh, the United States Supreme Court formally upheld what had been a previous common law rule that said mm -hmm. you cannot execute people who are uh, insane. Uh, that's one of those things that has carried over. There's constant litigation, especially in states that, that are uh, very gung-ho with the death penalty. There's a, there's a mm -hmm. couple of them in the southern part of the country that uh, are, are very much... Uh, you know, let's let's just rush them through the uh, the execution as soon as possible. Um, as a result of that decision from '86, though, there is constantly litigation over whether or not you can execute the mentally ill, um, mm -hmm. because again, there's a legal difference between mentally ill and insane. And insane, exactly. And and yeah. that's that's kind of the carryover on that is trying to expand that to make sure that not only are we not executing the insane, we're also not going to execute the mentally ill. And then the most recent case that I was able to find uh, is a case called Foucha versus Louisiana from 1992, uh, where the Supreme Court ruled that a person cannot be held indefinitely for psychiatric treatment, finding a uh, finding of not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, so it, it only took them 192 years, uh, but the Supreme Court of the United States basically said that the criminal Lunatics Act of 1800 was no longer going to be applicable because, again, um, you know, if you were found not guilty by reason of insanity, uh, you were detained at the region's pleasure. And uh, 192 years later, the Supreme Court said, it's like, eh, we probably shouldn't actually just keep Maybe it. we should, yeah. Maybe we should <laughs> go eventually. Eventually. Now, <laughs> all right. Well, like, like, like a lot of things, that's very open ended. You know, there's sure. not really oh my a gosh. concept as to what indefinite means but right, in theory right. there is at least a light at the end of the tunnel on that sure this is not a one-size-fits-all sort of play correct, by any correct. any means but all right so let's let's shift now into into indiana specifically jack and your experiences with the insanity please obviously you you know you went through that yourself um let's frame it up a little bit though for our audience when should someone plead insanity within a case within the state of indiana Insanity is one of those defenses that the Indiana Rules Procedure do direct the attorneys to uh, make that formal filing 
um, by the omnibus date. The omnibus date is a procedural administrative deadline uh, by which certain defenses are supposed to be filed. Uh, certain uh, prosecution amendments are supposed to be made. Um, to be perfectly honest, and I have, I, I'm sure that any judges who are listening would probably disagree with me on this one. Um, the omnibus rule is kind of archaic and doesn't really get followed anymore. Um, the omnibus state is traditionally set about 45 days after the initial hearing. We would be living in a perfect society if, you know, defense attorneys could meet with their clients, make these evaluations, make these tactical determinations, and, and get them done within 45 days. It does happen. It can happen. Um, but given the way the modern criminal justice system works, that's pretty unlikely. Uh, there is a catch-all in there that says that for good cause shown, you can file the insanity defense at any point in time with the court's permission. And that's typically what happens because there's just not enough opportunity to really investigate those, those matters beforehand. Um, the other interesting thing is even though it's an affirmative, even though insanity is an affirmative defense, competency can actually be filed by either party. Uh, both the prosecution and the defense can file a request for a competency determination. Because again, remember, competency is just about the here and now. Is this person, as we are sitting in court right now, competent to stand trial? Can they assist their attorney? Can they uh, make rational decisions about their case? Um, Robert Kadrovac, the hot dog man. Uh, that case, the prosecution actually requested a competency determination before I was even on it. When I got involved in the case, we asked for the competency determination as well, and I had the insanity defense tossed in there at the same time because if you're going to be evaluated by a doctor, you might as well be evaluated for everything. But competency can be requested at any time by either party. Uh, as court officers, we are charged as attorneys with not making material misrepresentations to the court. So if as an attorney, I think that my client is not competent to stand trial, I can tell the judge, Your Honor, in my professional opinion as an attorney, this man cannot adequately assist in his defense. That triggers the competency evaluation. Um, but with regards to the insanity concept, again, you're supposed to make that request by the omnibus date. You can mm -hmm. make it after that for good cause shown. Um, the, the couple of times that I have requested insanity determinations, they have been after the omnibus date, usually because we were waiting on records or some sort of other indication as to mm -hmm. what type of health history may or may not have been involved in that. Um, and, and, and we just yeah. didn't have time to get that done by the omnibus mm -hmm. date, but we were able to kind of establish the paper trail and manage to keep it going. Nice, nice. Well, uh, you know, hey, we're coming off an episode, Jack, where we talked about just different things, what you should know, really, if you're to be on a jury and what you should know, really, about juries as a whole. Who in insanity cases determines the insanity? Is it a jury? Is it the judge? Who, who determines insanity? If you, it, it, it's ultimately the trier of the fact. So again, the trier of the fact, if you have a bench trial, it would be just the judge. Um, if you're having a jury trial, it would be a jury. When you are having an insanity trial in Indiana, the jury actually has four verdict forms they can take back with, well, not that they can, four verdict forms that they do take back with them to the deliberation room. Uh, the first verdict form is your standard not guilty. Your second verdict form is, uh, is guilty. 
the third verdict form is not guilty by reason of insanity. And then the fourth verdict form is kind of a middle ground verdict, which is guilty, but mentally ill. So the jury makes that determination. What happens is the attorneys will make their arguments. Uh, the jury is the, the supreme decider of law and fact. will make the determination as to whether or not a crime occurred, which is usually pretty easy for them. Again, with the insanity defense, like all affirmative defenses, you're conceding up front this crime happened. This defendant committed this crime. We just have this legal justification for why that crime is okay. So that's usually a pretty easy determination for them to make. Technically, they do have to make it, though. After that, then they move on to the concept of did the defendant prove by preponderance of the evidence that the defendant was medically insane or legally insane at the time of the commission for, of the offense to justify his actions? If they determine that the answer to that is yes, the verdict is not guilty by reason of insanity. If they determine that he that the defendant was not able to show that the defendant was insane by preponderance of the evidence of the commission of the offense, they at that point in time have the decision of either voting guilty traditionally or voting for guilty but mentally ill if they believe that there is a mental illness, but that the mental illness did not in any way, shape, or form um, affect their ability to understand right versus wrong at the time of the criminal offense. And, and that's an important distinction because mental illness is one of the statutory mitigating factors that can reduce punishment if you're found to be guilty of committing a criminal offense. So having a jury make that determination that this person is mentally ill, that's about as good a finding of mitigating factors as you can possibly get. Mm -hmm. Additionally, um, if there is a finding guilty but mentally ill, when the court, if the court sentences a defendant to the Department of Corrections, they're supposed to get into special programming and special uh, special housing to assist with that mental illness, rather than just throwing them in the general population where their mental illness is likely to get worse. Sure, sure. Okay, so let's say a determination is made. Then, is there any way to to challenge that if if it doesn't go your way? If you're the defense. Sure. And I, I suppose we probably, I probably should have clarified this a little bit earlier. This is that that's on me. The general process for when you make your insanity argument is, is the court appoints, uh, at least in Indiana, the court appoints a psychologist and a psychiatrist to provide an evaluation of the defendant. Um, those two doctors will return a, uh, an evaluation to the court. Um, those doctors, the psychologists and psychiatrists, those are considered to be the court's special masters. They are witnesses in the employ of the court for a very specific purpose. Um, generally speaking, whatever the court doctors determine is the evidence that gets put in front of the jury. Both the prosecution and the defense are within their rights to hire their own doctors to challenge the court's doctor's determination. So if the court doctor says insane and the prosecution disagrees with that, the prosecution actually can hire their own psychiatrist and the defendant is required to submit to an evaluation on that. And they can argue to the jury that I know the court's doctor says this, but our doctor says this. And wow. the defense is the same way. The defense, if the defense does not like the court witnesses determination of sanity, 
that mm-hmm. can be a situation where we hire our own doctors to put that in front of the jury. And then it becomes another jury issue, just like anything else. Sure. Um, if you have, if you have an eyewitness who says, um, I saw a man in a red stocking cap, and then you as the defense put on another witness that says at the time this was happening, all blue the defendant was wearing a green stocking cap. Yeah. That's one of those things that the jury makes to the determination on that. So the sure. jury can actually make the determination between those different doctors. It is an appeal, but, but at least the defense has a chance to to put another option in front of them. Correct, and and mm-hmm. it is an appealable situation, just like anything okay. else that goes in front of a court. If you go to trial and if you were convicted of the trial, you have the right to appeal the jury's verdict and the determination. Um, and I have seen a couple of appeals where the appeal was on the issue of whether or not evidence of insanity was properly before the jury because they disagreed with the the doctor's assessments. So that can be appealed. Now, where you run into a major risk, of course, is if you have a full jury trial and if the the court doctor says sane and you put your own doctors in front of the jury that say insane and you try to appeal it and argue that, um, you know, the jury got it wrong, you're going to probably have a pretty hard time getting in the court of appeals to agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, but theoretically they could, and I think that honestly, that type of appeal, as I'm, as I'm saying it right now, that type of appeal would probably turn more on the concept of whether or not the applicable legal standards for expert testimony were applied when admitting the evidence that you disagree with. So again, hyper-technical mm-hmm. situation, um, right. but yeah, it, 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 it can be challenging. Yeah, yeah, it can be challenged. If if you don't like the determination that the court doctors have, you can challenge that with your own doctors. If you don't like what the mm-hmm. jury decided, you can argue the jury got it wrong. So it is appealable. It is challengeable. Yeah. It's just pretty difficult. Sure, sure. So let me ask you this then. Could you kind of bottom line it for us in terms of what, what really happens in ter- when – what is the effect, the ripple effect, if you will, of an acquittal? When somebody is not guilty by reason of insanity, what does that ripple effect really look like? Not good, to, to be perfectly honest. Um, if you are found to be not guilty by reason of insanity in the state of Indiana, what happens from there is the court actually will remand you to the custody of the sheriff following the trial. So it, it's not a situation where you're allowed to just walk out of the courtroom uh, because they have... The jury has found that you did, in fact, commit a criminal offense. They are saying that your mental health was a significant contributing factor to the point that you did not appreciate that you were committing a criminal offense. And the law at that point in time has an obligation to make sure that this defendant, even though they were just found not guilty, does not represent a danger to themselves or to the public as a whole. Because, again, remember... They've just been told you committed a crime. You committed this crime because you were mentally ill. That's a pretty big red flag. So the court will remand a defendant, even if the defendant here is not guilty, they go with the sheriff. They will be taken into custody and taken back to the county jail. And what happens from there is um, two more doctors, sometimes the original doctor, sometimes different doctors are appointed by the court 
to make an evaluation of the defendant to determine, okay, at this point in time, now we're looking, you know, we're not looking at the time that the crime happened. We are looking at here and now. Is the defendant a danger to himself or to the public at large? If the doctors make the determination that this individual is still suffering from a mental illness to the extent that they represent a danger to themselves or a danger to others, they are involuntarily committed to the state hospital, which in Indiana is in Logansport, and they stay there until such time as they are considered to no longer be a danger to themselves or others. And that can be quite a while. Sure, you know, again, we've got the we've got the 1992 case from the Supreme Court of the United States that says you can't hold them indefinitely, mm-hmm. but there's not a bright line that says when indefinite is. Yeah, yeah. But round this out for us. When could somebody theoretically be declared, you know, sane again? That's a remarkably good question. Sure, and, sure. I'm, and, I'm, I'm imagining it's pretty broad as to yeah. when that could happen. The the case that I worked on, um, hang on, so I'm gonna grab my post-it note. Uh, there it is. Um, the case that I worked on was back in um, 2012. It was here in Marion County. Um, the defendant and and unlike with uh, the hot dog man case, I'm not going to use this individual's name for two reasons. The first being that. Uh, he was found not guilty. It might have been not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was found to be not guilty. Um, and as a result, um, you know, I think it's best to allow him to preserve his anonymity on this one. Uh, the second is because he is still a patient at the state hospital, that represents more of a privacy concern, even though it is a case of public record. And if anyone really felt like going through my career enough, they could probably track the case down if they really had to. Um, but the case that I worked on in, in 2012 the defendant was charged with a, a class B misdemeanor, not a, sorry, not a class B misdemeanor, a class B felony. At the time of that case, class B felonies were punishable by sentence ranges of anywhere between six years was the minimum sentence and 20 years was the maximum sentence. The way that the credit calculation worked was that um, if you behaved yourself while you were behind bars, you receive one day of good time credit for every actual day that you spent in. That's where you would get the argument about you did two for one on your time or you did half of your time. So if this defendant had been maxed out at 20 years, his longest period of incarceration would have been 10 actual years. Um, his mother called me earlier this year asking if there was anything that we could do to have her son released from the state hospital because he's still there. And his situation, he suffered, he suffered from a very, very severe mental retardation. He was, um, I believe if memory serves me correctly at the time of the criminal offense, Uh, He was 26 or 27 years old and had the mental capacity and mental reasoning of a four-year-old. And the determination by the doctors at the end of the trial was that because of that that significant mental health issue, um, he represented a significant danger to himself or others. Um, the, the criminal offense that he was accused of was a, uh, serious felony offense. 
Um, I firmly believe that he did not mean to cause any harm, but he certainly did because it's a four-year-old brain in a mid to late 20-something body. Um, ideally, what is supposed to happen is when they go to the state hospital or if they are committed, the doctors are supposed to work with them to um, address their mental illnesses, address any cognitive issues that are impacting their ability to function, um, and more importantly, to not be a danger. And 10 years in on this case, um, the doctors have not been able to clear him as not being a potential danger to himself or others. And that's bad because we've reached effectively the end of the amount of time that he could have been incarcerated if he had actually been found guilty. So in some ways it was both a victory and a loss on this one. It was a victory because there were a number of collateral consequences that would have come with this conviction that probably would have led to him spending a lot of time in prison over the years. Hmm. But in the short term, he'd be out right now versus where he is currently, where he's been incarcerated at this point in time for longer than the maximum time he could have been incarcerated otherwise. And there's not a great end in sight. I know that we can't hold them for psychiatric treatment indefinitely, but if you've got doctors who are saying he still can't take care of himself and still not be a danger to others, you know, what do you do with that? That's, yeah. that's the, that's the dark side Man. of this defense. It's not, it, it's not a get out of jail free card. If nothing else, you know, it's, it's get out of prison into a slightly nicer bed card, mm. but you're not yeah. just going to walk out of that courtroom. You're not going to wash your hands up. It, it, it mm-hmm. is not uh, it's not it, it's not a great solution it's it's one of the yeah. reasons why sometimes from a tactical perspective you know that might even factor into why only one percent of cases actually go with the insanity defense very good point yeah you know, yeah we, I mean, we do well, have to kind of take the long term on that sure sure well jack i you know i appreciate you sharing that that case example with us because obviously it paints a great picture for our audience in terms of what all goes into that but then of course that darker side that ripple effect and what what really goes into the planning process if you are actually going to look down that road of making an insanity plea. So I, I appreciate you kind of peeling back the curtain, sharing that with us today. Um, Jack, as we're bringing our conversation to a head, you know, we've covered a lot today in regards to the idea of, plea, you know, insanity pleas and, you know, the, how that affirmative defense works within not only just its history and, and making the plea itself, but then obviously how it works within Indiana as a whole. But Jack, if anybody else out there had any additional you know questions for you and your team about, maybe pleas of insanity, or additionally, maybe they're just looking for representation as a whole. What would be the best way they could get in touch with you and your team just to open up a dialogue and, you know, uh, start a conversation? Really, As always, the best way of contacting our office is by telephone. Our main switchboard number is area code 317-983-5333. Operators are standing by 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so you will never actually get a voicemail. Someone is always going to answer your telephone call. Um, the attorneys, uh, whether we want to or not, sometimes do work a lot of weekends and nights. Um, if it's an emergency situation, the messages get patched to us. We can address them very quickly. Uh, our goal, of course, is to make sure your questions are being answered. Um for one reason or another, and, and I'm sure everyone online has their own theory, we are seeing 
significant spikes of instances where mental well-being and mental health are factors that need to be dealt with by the criminal justice system, which is very, very much not something that it's designed to do. Um, fortunately, as I see, and unfortunately, we at least have experience dealing with these cases. So if it is a situation where you think that you or a loved one has a mental health defense available to you, uh, just give us a call again, 317-983-5333. We'll be happy to answer your questions for you. All right. Thank you, Jack. Well, again, look, I appreciate you carving time out of your day, you know, stepping away from your clients for just a moment to be with us, walk through this idea of the, you know, the pleas of insanity and, and just give this overview on these insanity pleas as a whole. It's made for a good season finale and uh, looking forward to turning the page and moving into season two with you here coming soon. Absolutely. And and hopefully we'll even be able to keep a monthly schedule like we set out to do 18 months ago. <laughs> there you go. Well said. Well said. Well, thank you, Jack. And hey, look, as always, want to say thank you, guys. Thank you to you guys. And that's the audience, of course, uh, for stepping along, you know, joining us, being a part of the of the show, not only in today's episode, but throughout the entirety of our first season together. As always, if you enjoyed today's show, you took anything away from it, go ahead and hit that like button, subscribe to us, maybe on the platform that you check this out on. And then, of course, share this information any friends, family, anybody that you think would benefit from these types of conversations because we're taking the the routine conversations, the strategies, all of it that Jack's dealing with on a regular basis and we're bringing them right here to you guys on this show. And boy, do we have some exciting stuff coming up here in season two that we're excited to unveil for you. So don't miss out. For Jack, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long, but we appreciate you guys joining us here on the season finale of Closing Arguments. <laughs>